Welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, now part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. For episode five, we're turning the tables on our very own Jenna Blum, who co-founded A Mighty Blaze two years ago to help her fellow writers navigate the choppy pandemic waters of 2020. She's the best-selling author of The Lost Family, The Storm Chasers, and Those Who Save Us. And now Jenna has a new book to share with the world, a wonderful memoir called Woodrow on the Bench, which follows the last seven months of her beloved dog's life in touching, poignant detail. I was lucky enough to read an advanced copy of the book before it was released, and then I was lucky enough to interview Jenna during her book launch week. We talked about dogs and books and dogs and the city of Boston, and then more about dogs, as it should be. So settle in and enjoy the conversation between lucky me and my supremely talented, kind-hearted, and generous guest, New York Times best-selling author, Jenna Blum. Hello and welcome to A Mighty Blaze. My name is Trisha Blanchett. I'm the founder of Operation Delta Dog, service dogs for veterans, and I'm also a producer here at A Mighty Blaze. I do the Mighty Blaze podcast. That means I am doubly excited to host today's very special event and to welcome today's very special guest, a Mighty Blaze co-founder and New York Times bestselling author of the new dog mom memoir, Woodrow on the Bench, Jenna Blum. Welcome. Hi, Trisha. I love your <laughs> delivery is so measured and beautiful and this is why you're the podcast producer instead of me being like hey everybody it's podcast time which is like terrifying. beautiful everybody should listen to the podcast if you haven't already i listen to it when i'm walking my dog and driving in my car and it is a joy you're doing an Aww. amazing job thank you I, i'm not used to being on video so you'll have to bear with me i, I like the audio better no, I have a face for radio, as they say. No, my dad used to say that. I disagree respectfully. You have a face for TV and a voice for radio, which is the best of all combinations. So for those who don't know, Jenna founded A Mighty Blaze at the start of the pandemic. What was it, April? It was right in April. March. I think March, March was literally the start. March 2020 as a way to help readers and writers stay connected during lockdown. I'm sure she never imagined that two years later, we would still be here doing this. It's just a huge compliment, an accomplishment. And I wanna congratulate you and say thank you for all that you've done for all the readers, all the writers, people like me who could get involved. Um, did you ever imagine that the initiative would grow so fast and survive for so long and will probably survive for much longer than this. Was it even right. in your inkling when you started? No, not not in the slightest. In fact, I respond to crises very quickly and just on impulse. 
And when I saw my friend's book tours being canceled, I was sitting here in my underwear in my apartment and knew that Caroline Levitt, our other co-founder, was doing a Nothing is Canceled book tour, like mm. posting author videos, introducing their books. So we joined forces. But I really just thought that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I was just going to throw up some social media pages and introduce books that were pubbing every week. And because Caroline is Caroline, and she told everybody about it in the book world. And she's just like a big, generous heart on legs, basically. Like, that's Caroline. Yes. Within a week, we had grown exponentially. And then we just kept going exponentially. And then we have just kept going. And we're going into our third year of blazing. So 2022 is our third year. And Trisha knows right. this because... Quite modestly, she has been here since the beginning. Like I co-opted Trisha, I think in March. And I was like, you want to be involved in this, don't do. For no choice at all. So we've been working. Because you didn't want to do the spreadsheets. I was the spreadsheet. I I didn't want to do that. So you started doing the spreadsheets. Yep. I was like, who wants to do the calendar? Can you put it in a Google Doc? Like I cannot, I don't understand spreadsheets. So Trisha was doing spreadsheets initially and organizing things. (laughs) She was our air traffic controller for all our interviews, and then yes. she jumped on to doing podcasts. But we have 35 volunteers working for us, you guys. Like, machine now. And I'm so excited to bring you new programming and new initiatives in 2022. We were just talking about this at lunch today. Like, hmm. we've got new programs coming up that I'm going to reveal in January. So, Ooh. thank you for helping us grow. Thank you for keeping us blazing and, and alive. And, Trisha, can you please tell us a little bit about Operation Delta Dog, or do I need to do this for you? I would love to get my little logo showing here. Um, Operation Delta Dog is a nonprofit organization with a mission. uh, It's got kind of a double mission. We rescue shelter dogs and we train them to work as service dogs for disabled veterans. Um, We like to say that dogs get the homes they need and the veterans get the help they deserve. So um, it's sort of a double mission, and we've been at it since 2013. Um, so we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary, believe it or not. And we have placed, um, I want to say the number's at 55 right now, 55 rescue dogs with um, veterans. Guys, can you imagine? I just think this is the coolest idea. I didn't know that Trisha did this when I first met her. She was a novelist in my Grub Street novel workshop, and Trisha's book is coming out in 2022 as well. It's called Herrick's End. It's fantastic. It's a fantasy novel, um, fantasy for adults. Not that kind of fantasy. Get your mind out of the gutter, I see you people. But um, it's fantastic, like fantastic, very funny, very immersive, very gripping. And that was who I thought she was. I just thought she was a great fantasy novelist. And then I found out that she ran this nonprofit. I would like to know, I know this is an interview is supposed to be you're asking me questions, but surprise, <laughs> I'm hijacking it just like I hijacked the bro the other day. So I would like to know when you first started Operation Delta Dog, were there dogs who you rescued from shelters who you then like didn't want to give up? Like, did you start taking the dogs home? Like, who was your favorite oh, dog? Oh, God, no. My husband would not have gone for that. I didn't take those home. Um, no, um, it's a matchmaking process. So the, the people at the shelters are amazing. They know about us. They let us know if there's a great candidate. They call. They say, oh, Fluffy here is a great candidate. And then we take the dog in. The trainers evaluate it. I do not do any of the training or evaluating. I take no credit for any of that. Um they oh and they say, oh yeah, this is gonna be a great dog. And then they look at the veterans that we have waiting, and it's matchmaking because if someone's a couch potato, you're not gonna put them with a dog who wants to run 30 miles every day, and vice versa. 
Um, some dogs are not great with cats. So we wouldn't put that dog in a home with a cat. Or what, like Everybody's got their own weird little things. Every dog has their own weird little things. Um, and we just match them up and you can tell. I mean, it's it's like love at first sight when it happens. It's like, oh my God. So, okay. And how many shelters do you work with? Um, many, many, many. Um, the way it works, we're in New England and we've done a great job here in New England with spaying and neutering. So there actually are not a lot of shelter pets up here. But what happens is they all get brought in from mostly down south or the Midwest in our case. And they just get kind of brought up and then we start meeting them once they get here. So that's how the sheltering works in New England typically. I just love this. Okay, I have two more questions and then I promise I will let you oh do your own interview. But the first is, can you tell us what was the impetus for you to create this? Because we all have these ideas, like I'd like to help in some way and then the ideas go out the window, but you actually did right. this, you run this company now. How did you get the idea? Well, in 2012, there were a lot of stories about veteran suicides. Um, and it just happened to be in the news a lot that summer. And I just kept coming across it, Newsweek, Time, Boston Globe, everywhere I went. Um, and it just really started to bother me. My dad is a veteran and I grew up on army bases. I was an army brat. So it just was sort of in my blood and it really bothered me. And I started to do just a little bit of research of what was helping these veterans, like what was causing the suicide, so to speak. And it seemed to be mostly PTSD and brain injury, which just made life really difficult to manage. Um, and I learned that dogs can really help with that. As anybody who loves a dog will tell you, dogs just make life easier and better in so many ways. Um, and if you train a dog to do certain tasks for you, even better. Mm -hmm. So they do things like you never have to walk into a dark apartment because you open your door and your dog is trained to flick on all the light switches. And then... What? And then you walk in your house. So it's little things like a fear of dark places because maybe you were in war and you walked into a dark place and it didn't work out so well for you. So, you know, it's like little things that make life a lot better. And that's what the dogs are trained to do and pick up keys from the floor and things like that. But um, it's emotional support. It's all kinds of things like that. I love that. Well, I didn't know dogs could turn on light switches. My dog is obviously slacking. He does not turn on. Come on, Henry. Come on, Henry is asleep right now. He's so bored. With me. But I have to say that when you said dogs make life better and easier, I think that's true just by their sheer presence. Like sometimes they give us things to love and, and things to take care of, and, and they're just yeah. so goofy and silly. But I had not thought about a dog being of service to a veteran in this way by going into a situation and changing it for the better. Can you yeah. tell us one special, like a special love story between a veteran and a dog, like your favorite match? Oh, they're all wonderful. Um, the one that always sticks in my mind is one of our veterans, Donnie Jarvis. Hello, Donnie. He's great. We love him. Um, he was one of our earliest uh, victims, we'll call him. He was so brave to come in and trust us when we were still trying to figure all this out. Um, and when I met him, he had PTSD so severely that he could not leave his house. And he wore glasses all the time because he had all kinds of vision problems from a brain injury, all kinds of things. Um, so we actually had to go meet him at his house because he couldn't come out. By the time he was done, he had Mocha. He was matched with our dog, Mocha. He ran for selectman in his town <laughs> and went door to door with Mocha running for selectman. Well, obviously, people are going to vote for him because he had a dog, and the dog is a good judge of character, right? Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you for your service. As my dog is literally sitting here eating my homework. 
Uh, I want to see this. Oh my gosh. Look at this. He just ripped up my papers. Okay. Well, I hope it wasn't that. Was that like the new novel that you're working on? Dear <laughs> editor. Speaking so, of it. Liger ate my manuscript. We've all heard this before, Trisha. We know you did that yourself. <laughs> but back to you, miss. Back to you. Okay. So now. you have had great success with your writing and your novels, including, of course, bestsellers like Those Who Save Us and The Lost Family. But Woodrow on the Bench... For those of you who haven't seen the adorable cover, um, is a little different. It is a memoir. Can you tell us how you became so brave to write about your own life and your own experience? I would never be this brave. Why did you decide to write this? That's a really good question. And actually, it's all Mark's fault, our thoughtful oh. bro, that I was writing about myself. I had no intention of writing about myself in Woodrow on the Bench. I actually also had no intention of writing a memoir, which I have to say that way because Jane Roper, our Zeitgeist host, taught me to say it this way because we were both like, who writes a memoir? Like you have to be like a celebrity to write a memoir. You know, it's very jaja. Um, but when Woodrow, my 14-year-old black lab, was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, I spent the last seven months of his life taking him to the bench across the street from our downtown Boston apartment. I would carry him in a harness called a help him up harness because he wasn't very mobile. And we would sit on this bench day after day in all weathers. I had canceled most of my events um, and I was just trying to work from home. And I thought I would be able to get work done. And no, no, no. Woodrow was like the veteran you just mentioned before. He became like the mayor of Commonwealth Avenue and he would pull dog parents to us. He pulled friends to us who helped us, who helped me carry him back across the street, who bought us food, who bought him carrots, who brought canine ice cream that he loved. They would bring me coffee, carry his poop bags to the garbage cans, um, and then come and sit with us in our house and make sure we didn't get too isolated and make sure we were okay. And so I thought, well, even though I had never intended to write a memoir, maybe if I wrote about the last seven months of Woodrow's life, which were so difficult, but also so valuable and like so tender, that I could maybe help other dog owners who were going through that same gauntlet of days. And also that I could give a love letter to the community that helped us, some of whose names I still don't know, just like strangers who showed up and kept us company on the bench. And so I wrote about the last seven months of his life. Each month is a chapter. Each chapter is its own lesson about that he taught me about growing old, asking for help, being present, you know, letting go, letting people in. And between each chapter is a little mortar between the bricks and the mortar is a um, vignette of somebody we met on i loved those ordinary yeah. person oh thank you. thank you i looked at it was like in a different font so it sort of stood out from the yeah i'm like oh it is i should look at that yeah yeah, yeah okay so, <laughs> one of the things that i love oh it is a different font yeah. you're right i know i wrote the, um, the little interstitial vignettes in present tense also to make them stand out yeah. But I didn't want the book to just be me sitting on a bench for seven months, having people fed to us on a sort of conveyor belt, even though that's actually what happened, because I thought that might get boring. So instead, I, I built the sort of lessons that Woodrow taught me and then threaded the people through. And I did this by relying on my Instagram or Woodrow's Instagram, excuse me, Woodrow had a very robust social media presence and still does from beyond the grave. But every time we met somebody really cool on the bench, I would take a photo and post it with his comments. And so that was a sort of a visual diary that helped me 
remember who these extraordinary people were, whether they were friends or strangers. And I liked how a lot of them just sort of popped into your life and then disappeared. And you don't even know what happened to them. You don't know where they, and I wonder if they've seen this book and if they, they think, oh, that lady I met on that bench that day, she wrote about me in a book. Maybe so. I mean, I have some cool stories about that. One is that we had this dog walker named Devin from heaven, um, Woodrow, was not able to walk up the 16 steps from the street to my apartment. At that point, he was just getting used to his heart medication. He did get better and he could kind of move again. But for a while, I thought I would have to carry him up the steps. And he weighed 85 pounds and I don't weigh that much. I mean, I'm not like 88 pounds. Like, I, you know, he was, I'm like 20 pounds heavier than he was and had not been weightlifting at the gym, had only done cardio stupidly. So I was like, how am I going to carry my heavy ass dog up these stairs? And he really could not get up. And so I put my hand in my backpack that I took out onto the bench with him and pulled out this business card. And I don't remember putting it in the backpack. I don't know really where it came from. And it was this guy named Devin who walked dogs. And so I called him and said, can you please help me get my dog up the stairs? And maybe can you come every day, like morning and night to help me get my dog up the stairs? Can you, and move, all, in with me? <laughs> can you move in with me? And the, the dog moms would have loved that because we called him Devin from heaven, not just because he actually did do this twice a day, but because he was easy on the eyes. So they're like, oh, what time is Devin coming? And I'm like, back <laughs> off, ladies. Break it down a notch. But he helped me with Woodrow for maybe two or three weeks sat with us in the apartment, like talked to us in this very soothing way and kept us company and then disappeared. And I don't know what happened to him. So he was one example. And then also, um, I think we should, we should get our viewers here to track him down. I think somebody needs to track him down. Yeah. (laughs) From heaven. Although that might bring up some weird yeah, exactly. Like male, male, male strippers, and you know, I mean, Devin, if you're out there, get in touch with Jenna because right? we Devin, to, we want, thank we you. We want to talk to you. Yes, yes. I wonder. I mean, I wonder if I should just, you know, post on Instagram like every day. Well, I do, but <laughs> I would love to know what happened to him. And then there are other people whose names I literally don't know. Like there is one woman um, toward the end of the memoir. It was December. Woodrow was having a hard time standing up in this blizzard that we were sitting on the bench, it was snowing and it snow got worse and he couldn't get up. And I thought I I was trying to lift him and carry him and I I couldn't do it. It was probably the week before he passed. And this woman appeared out of the snow, like nobody I'd ever seen before. She's wearing the typical Boston in the snow thing of like a parka, a hat, you know, I could only see her eyes basically like gloves. And she said, can I help you? can I help you with something? And I said, no. And then I was like, no, actually you can. Like I'm having a really hard time standing my dog up and he just had an accident. Like it was awful. And this very, very kind stranger helped me get him up so I could clean him up. She helped me like get ready to carry him inside. And as I was like carrying him out over the snow back toward the apartment, I turned to thank her and she was gone. Mm. And no footprints in the snow, like no, nothing. She was just gone. And so I don't know if any of these kind people will see themselves in Woodrow on the bench, but I hope so. And I hope so too. Yeah. It's amazing. Now you are a big supporter of dogs, dog lovers, dog causes, not only Delta dog, but also I remember you supporting Lily's legacy senior dog sanctuary. I think it was called. Yes. Did you have dogs growing up? Are you also a cat person? What what is the deal here? Like where where did this dog thing begin for you? Thank you. I mean, before I was born, probably in the womb, because my mm-hmm. parents were both dog people, my grandparents, my great grandparents. I was looking at this photo the whole time I wrote Woodrow on the bench of my great grandmother Janora, 
um, on the farm in Minnesota, very stylishly dressed in this fur coat and these big boots and exactly like what I wear. And at her feet is this very square headed black lab who looks oh, like my lab. So I was really predilected. And one of my favorite parts of the memoir is describing the dogs I had growing up in the prologue because when I was a child in Montclair, New Jersey, we lived in a you know a beautiful suburban house. It was like a lab farm. Like we had three labs at one point. Um, my mom never. Yeah, my mom once went out to play tennis and she came back with a, a yellow lab puppy that was Buddy. And so like she couldn't see a dog that she didn't love. So we had all of these dogs and I grew up with them, you know, charging at guests like with hammers in their mouths and lamps and tennis rackets. And my parents, God bless them, were such great dog trainer people, but terrible trainers. Mm. The dogs were like the bumpus hounds in a Christmas story. Like they were like running all over the house, like stealing, you know, chickens off the stove and like butter and ice cream. I mean, they were just so ill-behaved. And my dad would be going down the street with like, all the dogs were like, you know, heel, heel. The dogs were like dragging him down. Like we would watch him get dragged past the window one way and then dragged past the other way. I mean, it was like this crazy. So you would think as an adult, I might not want a dog. But when I went with my then boyfriend just to see the puppies, and that was the Woodrow litter, it taught me that nobody ever just goes to see the puppies. Like you always see the puppies. So yeah, that was how I got Woodrow. And I love, I'm not a cat person. I'm sorry, cat people, but I'm woefully allergic. I would love to be a cat person, but I have to admire them from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, turtles, I don't have. I had some goldfish once. Um, something bad happened. Like, I'm going to stick with the dogs who I can apparently knock wood keep alive for many years. I am going to read a tiny little bit of this. So my main goal today is not to burst into tears. So I am not going to read any of the incredibly touching, moving stuff, because we need, just to, avoid, the boring just the boring we need stuff. to avoid ugly cries today. But I, I am a local to Boston, and I love all your descriptions of the city. Um, and anyone who's from around here will love them as well. And there's one thing in particular that really struck me. You say, Boston is a tidal city, its population ebbing and flowing with the seasons. In summer, it empties out, the residents migrating to the Cape, to the islands, to Berkshire's retreats. In the fall, they return, along with a tsunami of students. And I have never thought of it like that before, but it really is. It's, it's like the season. The city not only changes with the seasons, but the population changes. And this book, you call a love letter to Woodrow, and it is, but I think it's also a love letter to the city. And I'm wondering what first brought you to Boston and why did you decide to stay? Because you've been elsewhere. I have, I have been elsewhere and I always come back. Trisha, thank you for reading that. It's always very moving to me to hear my own stuff read. I think, oh, did I write that? Like it sounds really familiar, you know, but it's such a, it's such an honor. So thank you. So I grew up in New Jersey. Don't hold it against me. I was born in New York, New York, like grew up in Jersey. Um, my mom is from the Midwest, from rural Minnesota, where I also have a family home. So sometimes I go there to write and to become Amish. Um, and and so and you do the accent. You do the accent. I do. I yeah. You betcha. I can do the accent with the best of them. And I have a big garden there. So if anybody wants some vegetables, canned vegetables, I can send to you because I can my own. Ve- I like turn into my great grandmother lean out there with like a. <laughs> Although of course my neighbors in rural Minnesota are like. Oh, like a busy writer from the city. Why is she turning her garden over with a spade? Doesn't she know that we can use a rototiller? And I'm like, no, I want to do it like in the olden day. I mean, like, 
we do have machinery now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, we have technology. We have technology then. But I mean, I'm like Bridget Jones goes to to the Midwest. Anyway, so mm-hmm. I have bopped around a lot. I lived in London. I lived in Wichita, Kansas. I lived in Minnesota for a while. Mm-hmm. I always come back to Boston. I went to grad school in Boston. I went to Boston University. Oh, I okay. bludgeoned my way in, and I am not kidding. Like it was, it oh. took five times of me applying to BU for grad school in creative writing before they let me in. And I think really? I wore them down. Like I, yes, I kept sending these awful essays. Mm. I was in my early twenties, so I would send these essays. Like um, writing is not about like tools and skill. It's about talent. And they'd be like, reject. And I'm like, you know, so or, <laughs> if I were going to meet one of my fictional characters in heaven, this is the one it would be reject. And finally I just, sent in a story and said, I hope that you judge my application on the merits of the work and please let me in. And they were probably like, God, she's going to just keep doing it. Let her in. And so finally they let me in. And I went to grad school. It was a great program. Taught me to be a much more careful, thoughtful writer. Um, and then they gave me a job after school oh. as, as an adjunct. So that was like big leagues, baby, big bucks, big leagues. Mm-hmm adjuncting four classes. I thought I was hot bleep. Um, I was teaching creative writing and communications writing and journalism, which I loved and knew nothing about, but now Mm -hmm. I do. Um, And I stayed. And then I started teaching for this tremendous school called Grub Street Writers, which is where I met Trisha and uh, like half the people on the blaze, which is a a writing community based on giving positive feedback to writers and, and getting their work published in this very practical way. And so I've been teaching there for 21 years this year. Yes. Um, and the thing, the thing Jenna does that's so incredible that anybody will tell you who's worked with her is it is all positive. Um, it's not always like that. When you try to take a writing class, you try to learn something, you don't know what you're doing. You're, you're being very vulnerable. You're putting your words out there to a group of strangers and people can be critical and it's, and then you quit, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do. Um, but in, in Jenna's teaching, it's very positive. And in fact, we have a round that we go around where you can only say positive things <laughs> for the first half of the class. You can only say what you loved about the work. And then in the second half, we say things that we feel could be improved, but still in a very positive way. Like, I liked this. I would like it better if, you know, I knew more about the setting or something like that. Right, right. Constructive criticism, like saying that you didn't like something is not constructive. Saying why you didn't like it might be helpful. Um, And then saying you just love something and that's it. Also not helpful. You've got to say why you love it. So that's helpful. And then we do this thing, my favorite thing, the favorite line poll. At the end of the class, we go through and, and say what our favorite line was from the book that we're working on. It's just a joy. Like I work with such talented people. When I say I teach the class, basically I sit there and I drink from my mug and let people talk. And that's great. And I host the Zoom. So that's a lot. It's a lot. Of yes, but you you give it an overall tone that makes it very welcoming and makes people want to come and encourages people to keep going and, and improve, which I think is very rare. I wish more people did that, but it's worked for me. I enjoyed a lot. Okay, so I would like Speaking to say, a favorite line. How can you work there for 21 years when you're not 21 yet? And you said, I'm sending you like a case of scotch. <laughs> stay drunk, stay happy, just love you. Love you, Anissa. She always brings the party. That's what I say. About it does, yes. Yep. Um, speaking of favorite line, um, I have a favorite paragraph here. Um, your book touches a lot on the topic of caretaking obviously, because the book is about um, you taking care of an elderly dog. 
But anyone who's ever cared for an elderly person or a disabled person or an elderly animal of any kind or anybody that needed caretaking will definitely relate to this. You know, not only, you, you know, you presented in a very honest way about how difficult it is, but also there's a lot of humor um, because you clearly you lose your mind if you didn't. So this, this really made me laugh. Um, someone asked you, how is your self-care? <laughs> yes. And you say, I sighed inwardly. Privately, I found the concept of self-care, like the advice to live your best life, somewhat tyrannical. A nice concept, but often difficult to execute. What was wrong with living one's most mediocre life and being content with it? Some days you could manage only to live your worst life and muddle through. Self-care was the same. When you were caretaking somebody in failing health, it was hard to get a massage or a mani-pedi or eat three full meals a day. String cheese was a lot more doable. I'm doing okay, I told her. <laughs> Pretty honest. <laughs> and I think everybody out there can relate who's ever taken care of anybody or any dog or anything. Thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate that. It wasn't until Woodrow was gone, really, and my friends were here. Um, helping me through those the first awful awful days uh, following mm -hmm. his departure that I looked at his bed where he had been sleeping and I realized for the first time I was so in it you know like I was so in the experience and it's such a physical experience to caretake an elder or a senior or somebody who is chronically ill that it's all you can do to just get through every day and just try to meet the physical needs of that person and then, you know, reach out to other people just to keep sane. Um, maybe shower, but I mean, there was like so many days when like that was not a thing and I was hand feeding him and like covered with yes. little bits of food. And, you know, so it was not a pretty time. It was a really important time, but it was not pretty. It was not elegant. It was not about me. It was about him. And so anybody who's caring for somebody who, has an illness or is about to pass like it's really about that person and i know that people were so well-meaning saying like oh have you gone to the gym can you get a massage and i was like can i get up off the floor like if i bathe today like that's a lucky thing and so when woodrow passed i went into the room where his bed had been and looked at the sheets and stuff and i was like oh I was living in sort of a canine like hospice. Like I didn't really understand it because I just loved him so much and was just keeping him company and keeping him comfortable. But when I saw like his bed before it got taken away and before we cleaned it up and stuff, I was like, oh, I was doing hospice care. I understand that now. And that's how immersed you get in this experience. So, I mean, I was lucky if I could eat some string cheese or hydrate, like get sleep. He would wake me up a lot in the night needing to go out. Poor guy, you know, like, so you, you get through. And then the time for me for self-care was afterwards. Like I stayed yes. afloat with the help of my friends who bought me food or would come and sit with me, help me carry him. You know, everybody surrounded us with love, yeah. but it wasn't until afterwards that I was like, oh, maybe I'll go get my hair done. You know, it's like months afterwards and you know, who cares? That's fine. It was the experience that was more valuable. And you had trouble asking for help. And, and I noticed a progression as the book went on, you kind of just accept it. I, I need to ask for help. I can't do this all. And then you sort of, seemed to accept that. And I noticed you asking for more and more help as the months went on and, and being okay with it, as opposed to near, closer to the beginning, you're like, no, I can do it. I can do it. Mm -hmm. It's so funny when we were starting with Blaze, I want to say maybe the summer of 2020. So we were kind of, we were up and running, but there was still a lot to be organized and a lot to be done. And 
I said to the team on a staff call, I'm like, I really need your help with blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, God, I have such a hard time asking for help. And Mark, our thoughtful bro is like, what? He's like, you don't have a hard time asking for help. You ask for help all the time. And I was like, oh, I do? Oh, I guess I do. That's a Woodrow lesson. Thank you, Woodrow. And so I did get much better at asking for help. And it's always easier, I find, to do it on behalf of something or someone else. So when I was asking people for help with Blaze, you know, can, can you do this or can we, you know, can, Trisha, can you please do the spreadsheets for me? My eyeballs do not work that way. You know, um, that seems a little easier. When it was asking for help for myself, that is a hard lesson that I still have to learn every single day. Like I'm, I'm still a single dog mom. Like here I'm in my apartment with Henry and every once in a while I have to say things like I am like feeling isolated. Like who wants to go for a hike or, you know, can somebody help me with I don't know, putting in my air conditioner, just like stupid junk. But I feel like sort of ashamed of it still, always, yeah. because yeah. I was relate. I was raised to a tradition of self reliance, and so asking for help to me seems like a weakness. I have to work on that every day. So Woodrow helped you with that, I think. He really did, and when the pandemic hit, because he passed two months before the pandemic hit. And I thought that was the worst thing that was going to happen that year. Um, but uh, we went into 2020 and I was like, oh, thank God, it's a brand new year. Like, yeah, I know. Oh, just had this terrible thing happen. But um, when the pandemic hit, that lesson came in so handy because it was a time yeah. when I really had to ask people for help and not be ashamed about it, or I just would have gone cuckoo. And so to have Blaze there to help me help other people and to have you guys yeah. step up and help me with that was life-saving for me. And Woodrow gave me that lesson just in time. And the other thing I loved, and this is going to sound weird, but you kept, um, you would get angry. You got angry at Woodrow sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then after you'd be like, how could I do that? But we've all done that. Even when someone is sick or, or debilitated and you're trying to care for them, you get frustrated, you get angry. And then you're like, how could I have said that? This person is is dying or ill or whatever but it's so i found that so relatable i think everyone else will as well anyone who's ever gone through this the guilt and all that you know you you were true? is that really true it's really true. oh yes everybody i'm sure i don't know i don't know everybody but <laughs> you know and you had like the courage to write about that that i think it'll really help people thank you for saying that that was the hardest thing to write Oh, I'm sure. And I still can't read it out loud without crying, but there's that passage where Woodrow was like really not doing well. It was the week before he died and it was um, late November here in Boston, like early December. It was sleeting on ice. You know, he was very heavy and he had to go out a lot because his, his digestive system was shutting down by then too. So I knew what was coming and even still, it was such a hard thing to care for him. We'd go out, it took like an hour to go out, hour to come back in, come back in, be wet and cold and um, and then he was having a hard time finding places to do his business because of the ice. And it was just, it was wretched. It was like the scenes in The Little Princess, like right before, you know, good things happen. is like you always go to the darkest part. And that was the darkest part. And I remember saying to him one night, we were coming back up the steps of my apartment building. And I would throw a treat on each step, each of the 16 steps. I had treats in my pocket and I would throw a treat up. And then he would lump up the step and I'd throw a treat up and he would lump up the step and I couldn't be lifting him with his harness. And he was, he was having a hard time. And I was like, come on dog. You know, I'm like, you, you gotta help me out here. Like, this is so hard and I'm so tired. And I was crying and, 
I got him into my apartment and he just like sank down to the ground and like looked at the wall. And I was like, how could I be mean to this, this dog? Like I love him so much and it's not his fault that he's old. Right. right. It was so hard. And I was talking then to my friend, Jim, who was my ex fiance, who was Woodrow's dog dad for like seven years of his life. And Jim was like, when my mom was in hospice, I heard her caretakers talking. And one of the caretakers said to the other one, you are burnt out, go outside, go for a walk. You need to decompress. And Jim said to me, you're doing this by yourself and it's really hard and you don't have anybody to hand the baton off to. Right. So give yourself a break. But I still, to this day, have like a kernel of unforgiveness for myself for being. Yeah. being I think a lot of people carry that. And imagine saying it just like a human being who understands what you're saying and will remember and the, the guilt, you know, but it happens every day. It's a perfect storm of frustration and exhaustion and and you know bodily functions and it's just the reality of it and i'm sure everyone has done it in that situation and it's like oh how could i have done that well because you're human that's why right. <laughs> you know? right thank you trisha and, and not beating yourself up for then beating yourself up you know right. like i i forgive myself for like being i can't forgive myself for being cross but i also know that like it's just a process like there are just some things that you're like well that was never going to be my best self. And that was really awful. And, but it's part of the process. Like sometimes that sort of caretaking, extreme caretaking, like you're not your best self. Yeah, absolutely. How can you be? You know, right. You just right. right. You do the best you can. Something I've always been curious about is um, a lot of writers have superstitions about their process. Like I have to sit in a certain chair or wear my favorite shirt or light a candle or something do you have things like that or do you just see what the day brings or do you have like a schedule for writing or how do you how does it work for you every book is different so for a while I was very superstitious because it was an excellent form of procrastination where I'm like I cannot write this book unless I get the absolute perfect desk from West Elm and then I would get this desk I'm going to get a desk from Target, you know Oh, writer. Hey, now we're it, talking about dogs. It's dog mom time. I, I totally love it. I'm so glad. I wanted to see Ryder. Actually, Trisha has this great dog named Ryder who we like run through the woods together. I should point out too that like my own dog, Henry Higgins, sprained Trisha's ankle <laughs> in the pandemic. Well, he was running through the woods like a wolf and he was like eight months old and he was following her dog, Ryder, whom you just heard through the woods very joyously. I was like, Trisha, look at And like, he ran into her with his cannonball head and just like sent her flying. <laughs> I went flying. He, went flying. <laughs> he was like, oh, I'm sorry, Lady Trisha. I'm sorry I knocked you into the ditch. You know, like sprained her ankle. It was awful, but- Can Henry I'm make a cameo? Happy. Can we see Henry? Yeah, he's a sweet man. Yeah, I'll wake him up right at the end. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. No, I, I used to have like a lot of superstitions that were like handy procrastination devices. Uh -huh. But now, like every time I write a book, it's a little bit different. Once I get into a groove, I do get into a schedule. And so with my novels, I did this very immersive thing where I would go away, usually to Minnesota, to a very quiet place where I can't see any people. Um, and, and write, and I would write wow. every day from maybe like, I don't know, three to seven or something. <laughs> and, um, and like not really take breaks, like have one day a week to do errands or like tyranny of the quotidian, like life stuff, go to the doctor, go to, right, you know, right. so I'd, I would write, go to the gym, watch something connected to the book, do the same thing the next day, keep doing that till the book is done. 
come home, revise, whatever. But with Woodrow, I got up every morning an hour earlier than I usually do because I was working on Blaze then. And Blaze was like 16 hour day when we first started. So I'd get up an hour earlier um, and write a chapter of Woodrow or like write a scene from Woodrow. And I write with an outline. I break down the outline into scenes and map it to my calendar so I know what I'm writing on what day. And, you know, it doesn't always map out perfectly. It's almost like a spreadsheet. It is almost, except not though. It's actually understandable. <laughs> we'll get you to the spreadsheet. You are, I know. I know you're going to get me. I know you're going to get me. I know you'll convert me. Yeah. All right, I'm going to read some more of your book. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. Oh, I love it. This is so. It's like so. Um, I love it. Now, your descriptions of people, I just would smile every time, and I just jotted a few of my favorite ones down here. Someone was slender as a fingernail moon. Now that one took me a minute. And then I went, oh yeah, that little that little thing in your finger. That's like a fingernail moon. I <laughs> loved that. Um, another person looked a little like Ben Kingsley with a leaf blower. <laughs> Someone had a voice like foghorn leghorn and a laugh to match, which is very descriptive. Um, Someone was tall and tan and young and lovely, like the girl from Ipanema, a weightlifter who favors crop tops with long brown hair and oceanic blue eyes. So these are actual people. I mean, these are real people from your real life, but you've made them sound so ethereal, almost like fictional characters. And I was wondering how your friends and family and neighbors reacted to being in the book. What were the reactions? And did they like the way they were described? I mean, nobody has said anything to me yet, except that they liked the book. And the people who are in the book were very heavily involved with Woodrow Care and loving Woodrow. Uh -huh. So I think that was really the focus. But I haven't heard I haven't heard any complaints yet. But the reason I'm laughing about the I'm thinking about the Ben Kingsley with a leaf blower. That's our maintenance guy for our building, who also happens to be a Shakespearean actor. So he kind of moonlight <laughs> as a maintenance guy and he does amazing Shakespearean work. And I just saw him yesterday and gave him one of my few um, hard copies of Woodrow because the people who are in the book get copies of the book. Like that's my policy. Mm. And he said, Oh, I'm going to go and buy like six to, or eight more copies and give them for, for holiday gifts. And I was like, God bless you. That's so great. And then I was <laughs> like, oh, I wonder how he's going to feel after he reads the description of himself as Ben Kingsley with a leaf blower. And maybe he'll buy fewer books. <laughs> maybe he'll buy like, you know, 30 more books. But I, I think that, um, Writing about real people, obviously, is tricky. Much trickier than right. writing about fictional people who, you know, can't protest if they don't like the way you describe them. And so the trick is to balance an honest description that allows the reader to really see people clear, mm -hmm. like instantly and recognizably and clearly, and then also in a way that hopefully does not insult those people. So mm -hmm. I actually think Ben Kingsley is amazing, and I hope that my maintenance guy finds it that way. My friend Jacqueline, who's the girl from Impanema, Casey, my dog walker, who's the, the fingernail moon, you know, I've, I've heard nothing bad yet from anybody. I'll, I'll keep you posted. Well, you don't really say anything bad about anyone. I just, it must be such a weird experience to like go to a bookstore, buy a book and see yourself in there. Like things that you've done and said, described, it must be kind of a thrill. Like I just. I mean, that has not actually happened to me, I have to say, although one of my friends did once fictionalize me into a character named Lucy who spoke in Scrabble words, like all of her words were multisyllabic, like 
really obnoxiously long words. And I'm like, oh, that is clearly me. So it was like a little disconcerting, but it was also kind of awesome. I think the other thing is that even the people in the book who have more difficult roles, I describe mm. like great love because yeah. I genuinely love these people. And so even when I'm writing about conflict, there's a chapter called Thanksgiving. My best friend comes to visit from LA mm. and she's the only person who says to my face, I think Woodrow's time is coming. Like it's almost time for him to cross the river. And I was so angry with her in the way that you can only be with people you feel safe with. You know, but I was just right. like, that's not true. How can you say that in front of him? You know, and I just, I couldn't wait for her to leave. It was awful, you know, but that was how I felt. And then I gave yeah. her the book in a draft form so she could read her chapter, read the book. And she didn't know I had been angry with her. You oh. know, so I imagine this is like a little disconcerting. But yeah. the fact is, like, I love her. And that was the point of the chapter is I was yeah. showcasing like her bravery and being able to yes. say yeah. something nobody else would dare say. So I hope that she took it because we're still like, you know, dear friends and she's still my best friend. Like, I hope that she could see the love there. Yeah. And the same for Jim, my former fiance, who's in the book. And I unpacked that situation a little bit. Um, and had to give the book to him before it was published so he wouldn't be surprised. And at first he's like, do you have to say the thing about how I said I was going to like give you some sperm to make a baby and then drive off in my camper van, you know, that that I actually proposed this as a lifestyle. And I was like, I kind of do because it kind of happened. You know, I'm like, this is a memoir. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, well, at least they weren't blindsided. <laughs> yeah, it's not surprising. But he also read the whole thing and then called me and he was crying. And he was like, you know, I haven't, it's just an amazing book. It's a really fine book. I'm so proud of it. You know, I'm so proud uh, of you. So I got blessed by these people. And, and I hope they all see themselves with the love that I wrote them with. It looks like we are almost out of time. So I want to ask you a fast five. Okay. I think we had a question in here too, somewhere if we have time for that. Okay. If, um, if we can throw that up, but we can do. Oh, here we go. We do. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Okay. We have, we have good questions. All right. I'll, I'll do these really fast and then we'll do a fast five. How's that? Right. Okay. So Sylvia, can I quickly spot good talent in my classes? Yes, because everybody's talented. Everybody is ridiculously like stinking talented um, because I vet everybody who comes into the class to make sure they're a good experience match for each other. So people submit pages to get into the class and then I read the pages and say, okay, this person is like a great fit for the class. So um, that's how that works. But everybody's so talented. You'll see the books coming out next year. Jane Roper, Trisha's book, um, Julie Gerstenblatt, like all of the books are coming out. You will love them. How long did it take me to write this book? It was beyond emotional. It was, Anissa. So I wrote the book really fast, like in two or three months, I want to say, in the early days of Blaze. And um, some of the chapters were really emotional. The one that is the final chapter, December, where I had to let Woodrow go. I've talked about this in a few interviews before, so forgive if you've heard it. But um, I had to write that in one take, like in one sitting, because I knew I couldn't do it again. Um, and I had to stop in the middle of it and go to the bathroom and like wipe my face because I couldn't see because I was crying so hard. So that was really, really hard, but really important. Um, I was the same while I was reading it, by the way. Yeah. It's not, it's not an easy chapter, but I wanted people to know what it was like and then come out the other side and hold people's hands in that way. Um, but the book was a very fast book for me to write. And that, that was a good thing. Huh. Thank right. you for the, thank you for the great questions. The best thing that happened during my tour I got to see people like I get to see you guys on screen every day. I've been doing about 50, 50 virtual events and in-person events. I took Henry with me on my in-person tour to the Midwest. Henry got very spoiled 
started like sleeping on stages while I was talking, like started sleeping on hotel beds. Now he sleeps on the bed instead of in his crate. So that was really fun. We got to hang out with a lot of dog parents. Um, just being able to hug people was amazing. And to get my hands on a microphone again, because I love the mic. I was like, oh, it's my boyfriend, hot mic. Like I love a hot mic. Like that was amazing. <laughs> All right, are you ready for your fast five? I'm ready, bring it on. Chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. Night owl or morning person? Oh my God, you know the answer to that. <laughs> Night owl, I eat breakfast at midnight. <laughs> Signature drink? Woodrow cocktail. Of course. Which is like an old fashioned with a bacon stirrer. <laughs> Heels or flats? Heels, baby. Favorite binge watch? Ooh, all the old Sex and the City episodes and do not watch the new reboot season. I watched it last night. It was traumatic. Don't do it. Oh, I have to do it. I can't wait. So bad. I'm sorry. It's awful. Oh, no. You'll be sad. Right. Watch we'll the old ones. Watch the old ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and for talking about Operation Delta Dog with me and your new book. And for those of you who don't have it yet, you're crazy. Look at that face. <laughs> Look at that face. How can you resist this face? It's adorable. This face. The, it, Woodrow, the magic that is so true. Here's my paper that my dog just ate while we were talking. He like, literally left the room. He fled the interview. He's like, I'm not even, I'm not doing this. I want to give a plug for Operation Delta Dog and also Lily's Legacy Senior Sanctuary, which yes. um, saves old dogs at their rescues and places them in homes. So please, you guys, like, check these places out and, and help them stay afloat because you're really helping dogs and old dogs and veterans. And thank you for joining us today on Blaze. We love you. Thank you. Great to see you. Go get, a, go get a Woodrow. Many, many Woodrows. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel a suspenseful young adult fantasy called Herrick's End is due out May 10th. Tune in next week for an episode featuring romance novelist Alexis Daria. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.